The story so far: Nick and Stuart are in their first year at Jodrell Bank School of Astronomy and Astrophysics, and they are late. This is all your fault. If you hadn't been trying to fill Megan's bed with giant squirting slugs, we wouldn't be late for Professor Morrison's astronomy class. When she stops letting that cat rip my robes to pieces, then I'll think about it. Besides, those astronomy lectures are so boring. Who wants to hear about Orion again? Not happy with your lessons, Low. Five points from Aquila, and late for lessons as well. Ten points each. I should have known better than. Then, sir, <laughs> look, Stuart, on his arm, the black mark of Pluto. The black mark hasn't been used since since my old nemesis Baron Deathmorts was last here. You boys, get to your lessons. I must. I must find out. Something's up. Come on, we need to get moving. And that is Ursa Major. Lovely to see it this time of year. Boys, you are late. Ten points from Aquila. But sir, no we buts, wa- Low. Now sit down, or you'll be helping O'Brien clean up all the Rice Krispies out of the telescope after last month's escapade. Now then. Can anyone tell me what that is, and why it's so important? Sir, it's the moon, and Muggles think that they landed on it in 1969, but it was really all staged in a studio in California in 1978, and they also think it makes the tides go. But everyone knows that. I don't trust that new boy. There's something very suspicious about him. And is that really Gemini, or is it Canis Major, or is it a face? There's definitely something up here. First the mark of Pluto, and now this. There's only one way to sort this out. Expecto Jodcastus. The Jodcast, podcast of choice for eight out of ten cows in Canada, with Stuart Lowe, Megan Argo, Nick Rattenbury, Ian Morrison, and David Alt. The Jodcast, July edition. Hello and welcome to the July issue of the Jodcast. We're all here, back again at Jodrell. We've got Stuart and Nick once again here. Yes, hi, hi everyone. And on this month's show, we have Scott Fisher talking about the Gemini telescopes. We have the night sky with Ian Morrison. We have a roundup from all of the things that happened at last month's literary festival here at Jodrell. But first, before all of that, here's the news with Megan Argo. In the news this month, hottest exoplanet found. Outburst precursor to a supernova, mystery of ancient shorelines on Mars, and liquid mirror telescopes on the Moon. Astronomers investigating exoplanets, those orbiting stars other than our own Sun, have found a planet with a surface temperature of 2,300 degrees Kelvin on the day side, hotter than some small stars. It is possible to predict the temperature of a planet if you know how much radiation it receives from its host star. The more radiation it absorbs, the hotter it is. The amount of radiation absorbed depends on the surface albedo, a measure of how reflective a surface is. An object with an albedo of zero absorbs all the light falling on it and would look black. To measure the surface temperature of a planet, astronomers look for the decrease in infrared radiation as the planet passes behind its parent star. The amount by which the radiation decreases tells you how hot the planet is. This only works for a small number of known extrasolar planets. Since the orbit of the planet must be aligned in just the right way that it is eclipsed by the star during its orbit, there are now more than 200 known planets outside our solar system, but only 14 of them have the right geometry for this measurement to be possible. Predictions for the temperature of this planet, known as HD 149026b, were around 1,400 degrees Kelvin, much cooler than the measurements. The team who made this measurement, led by Joseph Harrington at the University of Central Florida. Suggests several mechanisms to explain the discrepancy between the predicted and measured surface temperatures, one of which could be due to the planet having a very high metal content and a black surface. This would allow it to absorb and very quickly re-radiate all the radiation that falls on it, 
causing it to glow a deep red colour. Catching supernova explosions is one thing, but spotting their precursor stars is another. Of the different types of core collapse supernova, the progenitors of Type 2 events have sometimes been found on sensitive high-resolution images taken by chance prior to the explosion. But little is known of the precursors of Type 1b and 1c supernovae. In research published in Nature during June, a group led by Andrea Pastorello at Queen's University in Belfast described observations of two transient events at the same position in the galaxy UGC 4904. The first, spotted by Koichi Itagaki of Japan in 2004, faded from view over just 10 days. The second explosion, spotted at exactly the same coordinates two years later, was reported as supernova 2006 JC. A spectrum of the second explosion shows that the progenitor star was probably a very massive Wolfreyat star, somewhere between 50 and 100 times more massive than our own Sun. These stars have lost their outer hydrogen envelopes, and so their spectra appear hydrogen deficient. One explanation for the two explosions is that the 2004 event was a giant outburst similar to that of Eta Carina in the 1850s, while the brighter 2006 event was the final catastrophic core collapse event of the same star. If this is the case, then this is the first time two such explosions have been seen from the same object. Another possibility, however, is that the first explosion was from a luminous blue variable orbiting in a binary system together with the Wolfreyat star, which then exploded in 2006. The fading light from 2006 JC continues to be studied by astronomers to see which of these scenarios is the most likely. Past evidence for liquid water has been found on the Martian surface by many scientific instruments on many different probes over the last few years. Topographic maps of Mars, such as those made by Moller, the Mars Orbiter Laser Altimeter, show that one half of the planet has a much lower mean height than the other. The boundary between the low and high areas of the surface has been described as a possible paleo shoreline, which might have bordered an enormous ocean two billion years ago. On Earth, the surfaces of the oceans trace an equipotential, a surface of constant gravitational pull. One of the objections to the shoreline hypothesis on Mars is that when the topography and gravitational potential were mapped by spacecraft in the 1990s, scientists discovered that the supposed shoreline deviated from an equipotential. The water level would have been much higher in some places than in others, by up to several kilometres. A team of researchers led by Taylor Perron at Harvard have now shown that a process known as true polar wonder, a change in the orientation of a planet's poles compared to its rotation axis, could explain the difference in shoreline height. They suggest that the formation of the volcanic Elysium region could have caused the planet's orientation to shift, which in turn would have moved the shoreline. It has been suggested for some time that future large telescopes for very sensitive surveys of the sky may be constructed on the surface of the Moon rather than in space. Instead of having traditional solid reflectors, however, they might use liquid mirrors. These have several advantages. They are simpler to construct and lighter than conventional solid mirrors, and together, gravity and inertia will always pull the surface back to the parabolic shape required to focus incoming light. Previous experiments have used spinning liquid metal alloys, which, although good reflectors, are unsuitable for infrared observations. This is an important part of the spectrum for studying very high redshift galaxies and probing cosmology. Now, experiments carried out by Ermano Borra and collaborators show that a stable reflecting surface, which is usable in this part of the electromagnetic spectrum, can be produced by coating an ionic liquid with a layer of silver. Optical and infrared telescopes built using this technology on the Moon could have apertures between 20 and 100 metres in diameter, and the ability to observe objects 100 to 1,000 times fainter than the next generation of space-based telescopes, whose sizes are limited by the capabilities of current launch vehicles. And finally, funding cuts are threatening the operation of the Arecibo Radio Telescope in Puerto Rico. A review of funding by the National Science Foundation last year recommended the budget of the observatory be reduced by 25% over the next three years. If the National Astronomy and Ionosphere Centre, who operate the telescope, cannot find another source of funding to cover half the operating costs, then the facility may be shut down altogether by 2011. Due to the budget reduction, the observatory's radar system may be shut down as early as 2008. The radar system is used to study our solar system and has been used to make many discoveries in recent years, including the discovery of Mercury's molten core. It is also used to search for and track asteroids which may at some point collide with the Earth. 
The Goldstone radar system is also used for asteroid tracking, but it is 20 times less sensitive than the Arecibo telescope. Thanks, Megan. Now, last month, uh, the Literary Festival came to Jodrell Bank. Now, I was helping out with all the, on the sound side of things, our fantastic Moonbounce poem event, and it was a really fantastic couple of days, um, just getting everything working, um, and actually hearing echoes coming back from the moon, it was brilliant. Now, we're a radio quiet site, so we weren't able to do the transmission ourselves. So we sent our audio to Dave Bigley, who's a fantastic radio amateur from Buckinghamshire in the UK. He transmitted our audio to the moon, where it was reflected back, and then we picked it up with the Lovell Telescope here at Jodrell Bank. Now, because light takes a certain amount of time to travel the distance, and the moon's about 385,000 kilometres away, that means it takes two and a half seconds, roughly, for the radio signal to go there and back. Now, to make sure that the audio transmission was working, we got Professor Phil Diamond, who's the director of Jodrell Bank Observatory, to test it out. Okay, what we're going to do is, uh, Phil's going to just say a few words uh, in a moment and then we'll listen out, listen out for the echo just to make sure that we've got the signal before we, ask the, uh, before we ask Joanna to read her poem. Are we okay, Dave, to do that? Are you transmitting now? Okay, I will start transmitting now. Hello, Moon. As Erica just said, we can sit here and say this all day, but uh, hopefully this will work. Hello, Moon. Hello, the Moon. There we are, that was Professor Phil Diamond testing out the system for us. Then we had the main poetry competition winner reading their poem. Then we had poems from around eight school children in the local area who'd been to a workshop on the Friday and were then able to read their poems out to the moon. So we thought we'd give you a taste of two of those poems, the first by Sasha Gilmore and the second by Martin Blutch. Empty disco ball in space. Can you help me? Please shimmer back your answers. And I'll be very happy. Are you made out of cheese on the inside? Or just full of jelly? Or do you just sneak into people's house and watch telly? And finally, last but certainly not least, Martin. I'm all alone in space. Nothing much to do. Along came a poem. And I bounced it back to you. Now I think, I think that was really wonderful. Now I think there was a plan to do a group shout. Am I right? Excellent. You're in charge. Okay. All right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I think what we'd like to do is let give uh, everybody a chance to send their voice to the moon. And I think it would take too long to get you all to come up here individually and do it. So I, I suggest that what we do is we, we all shout something. And then what you, as soon as we shout it, you're going to have to shut up quickly. Okay? Because you're going to have to listen for your echo to come back. So I, I'm going to suggest something that we should shout just to avoid any problems. Um, I think we should shout, Hello, Moon, and then we'll wait. And then I think we should shout, Can you hear me? And then we'll wait. Okay, so you have to wait for the echo. So I'll tell you what, um, are we all ready? Do you want to take... I'll, I'll, I'll wave my hand in the air when we're ready, okay? Um,
So there you are, a bit of a taste of our moon bounce. Dave? Now, through the winter months, one of Ian Morrison's favourite things to look at is Gemini in the sky. So, we thought we'd do something just for him. Nick, you went and saw someone all about Gemini, didn't you? Yes, I went to see Scott Fisher, who is a fantastically enthusiastic chap who works at the Gemini Observatory, and spoke to him all about the Gemini telescopes, in particular Gemini South, and how to use it, what it's used for, and everything about this most fantastic large telescope. Gemini is the, um, it's an international collaboration. Um, seven countries have a part of Gemini, the U.S., the U.K., Canada, um, Argentina, Brazil, and Chile all have, um, and Australia's in there somewhere. <laughs> and, and, um, and so um, the, we had first, there's two telescopes. One is um, in, on Mauna Kea in Hawaii in the northern hemisphere, and one is in, on Cerro Pachon in central Chile, minus, minus 30 in the south and plus 20 in the north. Right. And so we get the full sky coverage. They're um, eight-meter telescopes, um, so they're, they're biggies. I think number six and seven on the top ten list or something <laughs> like that. In general, we, 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 they're very well optimized for the infrared. I mean, we feel the infrared is really one of our strengths, but we do really excellent optical science there also. And um, a unique thing of Gemini is that we have all, all of our mirrors are coated with protective silver, not, not aluminum. And um, that gives us a sort of an immediate 2 to 3% boost in the infrared because the, the, the reflectivity of silver is very high in the infrared. I've got a question, though, before you go on. Mm-hmm. It's, it's always interesting to me. How do you surface a mirror, <laughs> eight meters high. It is an incredible process. It, actually, at both sites, at, at the summit of Mauna Kea and at the summit of Serapachon, we have a coating chamber right there. And it's a, you know, a, it's a huge chamber, sort of nine meters across. And through a, a week process it takes, the, the, you know, the, engine, the full engineering team of the, of the observatory, um, you re, it's brain surgery. You take the mirror out, physically remove the mirror from the telescope, and put it in the, put it in the cell, the coating chamber, right. strip off the old, the old coating, and, um, and deposit the new, the new coating down on it. How often do you have to do this? We thought that when we switched to silver, it was going to be a once-a-year sort of thing because just, you know, degradation of the, of the surface and that sort of thing. Is, is silver better in that, ca- in that sense than uh, aluminum? Or well, we, we were actually worried that it was going to be quite a bit worse. Right. We thought, okay, we're going to put the silver on here, but this means that once a year we're going to have to recoat. Um, but it turns out that the, that the coatings are holding up really well. And we're, we've um, we've gone almost two years at Gemini North right now without recoding, with very little, very very little decrease in reflectivity. So we're really we're really quite happy about that. Now it's not pure silver. Well, it is. Excuse me. There's a layer of pure silver, but then it's overcoated with a layer of you know some nickel alloy. Now these are angstrom thick right. um, coating. So <laughs> why is that? Why do you need the, the second coating? I think the second coating is it, that is definitely protection. Right. You know, the silver would tarnish, for example, and 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 uh, you know, you don't want to get water on it and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So the, the the outer coating protects the silver quite quite well. Evidently, <laughs> it's lasting a long time. So the Gemini uh, telescopes are optimized, if you like, for optical and infrared work. Indeed. I think we would, I, I would say optimize for the infrared because it's not just the silver coating, but for example, we have um, the top end of Gemini where the secondary mirror is, is very clean in the sense that um, there's a very thin spider veins that hold the secondary mirror in place. And there's um, no metal sticks out from behind the secondary mirror. And this is all to keep the emissivity and the sort of thermal emission of the telescope suppressed as much as possible. Um, and those, that is what we sort of say when we think of infrared optimized. Now, optically, we have very, two very good instruments called GMOS, very versatile sort of workhorse instruments that do imaging, long-slit spectroscopy, uh, MOS spectroscopy, where you have many, say, 100 little slits, mm-hmm. and you can get 100 spectra at a time, and IFU, integral field units, in both of the G- GMOSs. So. What is an integral field unit? An in, uh, that's really quite cool. You get a very small field of view. Let's say you get a 5 arc second by 5 arc second field of view, but you get a spectrum of each pixel. So with one observation, you get sort of a 3D data cube. You get 
an image, mm-hmm. but at each pixel of that image, you also get a spectrum. All so right. if you consider, let's say you, you put the IFU, you, put, you observe the center of M31 mm-hmm. or something like that, what you're effectively doing is taking a spectrum of each pixel across your array. So you, it's, you, you get 100 or 200 spectra just in one pointing. So you get all of that wavelength information as well as an image. As well as an image. You can reconstruct. You can use all of the collapse, all of the spectra down into a single image. Or you can just pick out whatever little wavelength interval that you'd like to see. You know, if there's a, an emission line, hydrogen alpha, right. or something like that. And one thing we're really excited about is um, just now near-infrared IFUs are coming online. We have one in the north called NIFS is the name of that. Same concept except now it works from one to five or one to two and a half microns mm-hmm. where you, uh, again, can look at an object in the near infrared, you get an image, but also at each little pixel you get a spectrum. What sort of work are these integral field units used for? Oh, man, let's see. They're very broadly applicable, but two things that I know for sure, one are outflows. Right. For example, let's say you look at a young star and you know that, that there's an outflow and with an instrument like NIFS, you put the integral field unit down on top of the star in the outflow, and you, and you get a spectrum, of course, at every pixel, and you can make these beautiful velocity maps. Right. So you get this great velocity information, whereas before, you would have to take a long slit and then step the slit across the object. Right, you have to move the telescope Indeed, very, very, very slightly across the object. Indeed, that you're sir. At. You, you're, you're making tiny little offsets. To, you, so you may take 50 pointings mm. of the telescope to get the exact same information that you're getting with one pointing with the IFU. So what you get is your image from the IFU, and you think, oh, that's the region of outflow from the object. Look at the spectrum and go, well, that's, you know, oh, that's, look, how, that's how fast it's moving. That's exactly right. This works just – and it's, it's not just for, um, for young stars in particular um, um, active galactic nuclei mm-hmm. where you have the black holes and these awesome jets coming out of the AGNs, this sort of thing. And even I think one thing that we're just going to start to do is um, IFU spectroscopy of planets like Jupiter. Really? So, again, of course, you point this thing at Jupiter and you have, let's say, 100 pixel elements across the disk – not only are you getting an image, you're getting a spectrum of each of those elements right. at, in one shot. Right. And that sort of thing is coming. What are you going to learn from that? What are you going to learn from the, the, the sort of observation of Jupiter? That's interesting. Now, this is getting a little, a little deep for, for my understanding, but not only would you get wind speeds and things like that, but the spectra, the shape of the spectra change also. So, um, you know, maybe there's very strong methane absorption in, in one region, but um, methane emission mm-hmm. in another region. And, um, you know, I'm sure that from line ratios, you can get ideas of temperatures and pressures and things like that. Fantastic. You actually do some of the observations at times at Gemini. Is that, that right? That's Tell indeed. us a bit about that. Yeah, that, it's, it, that's quite cool. And this is, you know, one of the reasons why you get into astronomy in the first place. But um, there's um, a, there's a half a dozen or so science staff at, at, at well, I would say maybe, you know, I think maybe 10, 10 science staff at Gemini North and 10 at Gemini South. And we have a rotation set up. Um, an observing shift is uh, four nights plus a night of acclimation, particularly in the north of 4,200 4, meters. So, so it's, that's actually a height acclimation. You have to get used to the height oh, of the telescope. Oh, oh indeed, indeed. Um, Gemini South is at a 2,500 meters. That's, pre- that's not too bad. I mean, you feel the altitude there. But um, in the north at 4,200 meters, that, that's, a serious, that's a serious effect. What happens to you? Yeah, let's see. What the funny thing, every, it affects everybody a little bit differently. But um, for me, the first thing I notice is I, just, I feel kind of loopy. You know, you're saying, <laughs> whoa, whoa, wait a second. You know, a little swimming, a little, a little bit. Um, I'm headachy, though. You feel real headachy. Um, you're, you you, you want to pop your ears, your sinuses. Right. You feel pressure in your sinuses. And funny, funny enough for me, my eyes get bloodshot red, just as red as you can possibly see mm-hmm. uh, up there. And um, there you know, no long-term effects, but you, you just don't feel – Top notch. This is altitude sickness, isn't it? It's, it's basically it's, it's essentially. I mean, you when you when you get up to that altitude and you spend significant time there. Of course, you know, long winter nights are twelve, thirteen hours long. Mm. Um, you're you're just suffering from mild hypoxia or um, or altitude sickness. Now, um, Gemini is very good. We have to go through high altitude physicals and this sort of thing, so they keep you in top notch shape. But um, but it is an effect. A secondary effect is you know. You're not your sharpest up, 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 up at the summit either. You're not on top of your game. Indeed. You know, you, you stand up to go get a cup of coffee and you get halfway to the kitchen and you go, huh? 
uh, oh, coffee, yes, right, okay, um, that sort of thing. But um, so what we do is when we run the queue, we actually have um, during the day, bef- before the night of observing, a person down at the base facility puts together what we call the nightly plan. And that's really, that's kind of a full-time job. That's mm-hmm. um, That takes the person the full day to look at all of the programs that are available, look at the predicted weather for the night, look, you know, what's the phase of the moon and, and what objects are available. And then they put together a plan, which is then p- printed out basically at 4 o'clock. We have a meeting at 4, 4 o'clock every day. You're handed the plan of the night. And your job up at the summit is to strictly just try to follow that plan. Right. Now, you do have to make some assessment of the data, and 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 you're busy up there, you know. But um, you don't have to decide. Oh my gosh, should I do this program or this program? Oh, it's the moon's up, so maybe that one's not any good. That's that's done for you. Right. Um, but so so observing itself. Well, you know, of course, the days of there there is no eyepiece on Gemini. Unfortunately, I'd love to look through that thing sometime, <laughs> but um, no way to do that. Everything is it's all CCD. It's all electronic. So. So um, you sit in the control room. There, it takes two people to run the Gemini, one of the Gemini telescopes. You have a telescope operator. That person's responsible for making sure the telescope is operating okay. They take you to the object that you ask for. They set up the adaptive optics system and, and takes them a few minutes and they say, okay, go. And right. then your job as the astronomer is to basically run the instruments. You run the camera. Um, you make sure the correct filters are in. Exposure times are okay. And you have to make um, a quick assessment of the data. Does this look like right. what we were expecting? Right. You know, is it, you know, if you're looking at a galaxy, you know, okay, does this, does this look kind of what <laughs> we're supposed to see? If you're looking at a star, you make sure it's a little point, not a big, long, elongated thing, that sort of thing. And, um... And that's kind of how it goes for the night. But and by and large, it's an automatic process. You, it's pretty automatic in the sense that if you um, – once you set up the, the instrument and you make sure everything is selected okay, you sort of hit go. Yeah. And um, – you know, watch. And now with the optical instruments, every you either have a love or hate um, <laughs> relationship with them because the optical instruments tend to have very long integrations. Right. So you can hit go, and 90 minutes later, the thing goes beep, done. <laughs> <laughs> the infrared instruments are a little more interactive as they often have um, data sets that appear every minute or two. And, you know, and you can sit there and, you know, look at them and say, oh, well, that one looks okay. Give it a little green check and, um, and do that sort of quality assessment throughout the night. The sort of scheduling process for a telescope such as Gemini, what happens if the clouds roll in all of a sudden and you go, oh, what do we do with this guy's observations? Do we do them later? Do we dump them? What do you do? What's the decision no, make? No, this is – one bit of background is that I was really against cue observing at first. I hated the idea of not going to the telescope and not seeing your data coming down the, the pipe and this sort of thing. But I've, I've been converted. I think, you know, again, because of the fact that it, the queue is more efficient and this sort of thing. But you bring up a good point is um, if you're observing and that's it, you know, of course, the clouds do come in. You get a half a night sometimes. And um, the first thing we try to do is we look for programs, let's say, that can handle a little bit of cirrus or can handle poor seeing. Right. Or um, it's kind of a rare case, but every once in a while there's a case where there's just nothing available. Mm. And in that case, you sit and wait. Right. Just like, unfortunately, a classical observer would have to would have to sit and wait for the clouds to go by, also. But um, that doesn't happen so often because you know there's a one hundred programs in the queue, and some of them need pristine, perfect seeing, no moon, no wind, and some of them can say, "Oh well, gosh, I'm looking at you know an eighth magnitude star or something. I can handle some clouds. Yes, I can handle you know poor seeing that sort of thing." So. Um, the person that puts the plan together, they have to – you don't just have one plan. You know, you've got the perfect, no clouds, perfect seeing. You've got the eh, a few clouds, perfect seeing, eh, lots of clouds, bad seeing plan. Right. And you kind of hop back and forth. I guess the way to say it is, is that Gemini, we take what the sky gives us. You know, we don't fight the sky in the sense where we try to do – programs under iffy conditions. If the conditions change, 
we try to be flexible enough to change with them and you know perform observations that can handle that that those conditions mm. You mentioned just before about the adaptive optics system mm. on the Gemini telescope. Can you explain a little bit about adaptive optics no, and sure. how the Gemini system works? No, that adaptive optics is oh, this is great. This is get this is even for an astronomer that works there. This this is pushing up against black magic. It's um, <laughs> the the Gemini has uh, both telescopes have have one system which we call active optics. And that is, you know, we have this big mirror, this eight-meter mirror. It's actually only um, uh, ten centimeters thick, so it's a very, it's a meniscus mirror, it's called, and it's very thin. And that mirror rests on just over one hundred pistons. Now the mirror is thin enough that it slumps under its own weight. So as the telescope tracks an object over, that the mirror actually slumps down. And these once a minute, these pistons push on the back of the mirror to push it back into 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 sort of a perfect optical form. That's what we call active optics, and both of the telescopes have those. And um, in the north, and soon soon coming to the south, but in the north right now, we also have an adaptive optics system. This is um, an, an instrument on the back end of the telescope. And within the instrument is a small little mirror, let's say, um, oh, 20 centimeters across or so. And that mirror is what we call a deformable mirror. The deformable mirror in our system named Altair, Mm -hmm. is the name of the adoptive optics system, can run at one kilohertz. So a thousand times a second, you can deform that mirror. Now, so how do we use that? Mm-hmm. Well, we lock onto a star to um, to guide the telescope, as every telescope does. Of course, you use a guide star and you guide the thing. Um, but what we do is we send feedback as Altair observes the star. It can it can measure the aberrations, and we know what a perfect star looks like. Right. We know what we're getting. You take you subtract the two, and you get the residuals. Altair is smart enough and fast enough that it can calculate the residuals and then deform that deformable mirror to take out the aberrations in the star. It's amazing you can do this in real time, oh, fast enough. It's unbelievable. And if, and if you put your head next to Altair when it's running, you can actually hear that deformable mirror, a high-pitched hum of that, the actuators pushing that mirror 500 or 1,000 times a second. So in, in, in effect, what you see is an incredible thing. You're watching on the screen, and um, you're setting up on the star, and you kind of see a little fuzzy blob there that's moving around the detector. And the, the telescope operator says, click, and turns Altair on, and the thing just not only does it become dead still, this little core forms, and it just whoosh, tightens up. And we get, oh, gosh, an increase in a factor of... A factor of four in resolution is very common with Altair. You switch it off, you're getting 0.4 arc seconds. You switch it on, you're getting 0.1. That's fantastic. Yeah, that's incredible. You can't beat that. One kilohertz is a spectacular speed for, for something like this to, to run at. It, it's really, it's um, not only is it the, the advent of you know, high-speed feedback loops. You know, again, because you, the thing that really amazes me is, of course, is you're correcting for the aberrations of the star that you're looking at in real time. Yeah. And so the feed, it's, it's a computer, right? It's all, it's all due, you know, Altair has a bank of computers in it. And those computers are dedicated to doing exactly that, calculating the aberrations. How do I have to deform that mirror to, you know, to exactly cancel out sort of the aberrations that you're seeing? But, it, but again, um, coming down the coming down the pipe here, you know, five years from now, we're going to scoff at something that only has 100 actuators. And mm. you're talking, you're going to talk about deformable mirrors that have a, f- a few hundred actuators, which means that you'll get a better correction because, you know, you can do sort of a finer, a finer correction in, mm. in that sense. But a kilohertz is probably about as fast as you need to go, at least for right now. Why infrared? What's the, why do we want to have such a big telescope in, in the infrared? Yeah, it's, um, that, that that's a really leading question. Now, I think the thing the thing is is that the I'm good um, at those. No, no, the the I mean, in infrared in general is um it's it's it opens up an entirely new window to the universe. It's it's akin to you know you say optical astronomy, infrared astronomy, radio astronomy, submillimeter astronomy. In infrared, in the near infrared, you're sensitive to objects that are say. 1,000 degrees Kelvin, 2,000 degrees Kelvin. This is perfect for studies of brown dwarfs, low-mass stars, the um, in- interstellar medium in some places, and this sort of thing. In the mid-infrared, um, a little bit longer wavelength. In the near-infrared, we're talking, let's say, 1 to 5 microns. And in the mid-infrared, we call from 5 to, say, 25 microns. There, you're sensitive to, to 
um, objects that are sort of a few hundred Kelvin. There you have things like, in the mid-infrared, it's sort of dust. Everything's about dust. Mm -hmm. You're looking for circumstellar disks, beta, right. beta Pictoris, Vega, um, our, our zodiacal light, mm -hmm. um, things like that. Um, cold dust and molecular clouds, you can see things like that. That's getting a little cold. That's getting out into the millimeter and radio regime. But um, the infrared, I, I would say broadly, the infrared is a new, not a new, but um, a different window into the universe. And if you, you know, if you look at the Orion Nebula in the optical, and then you look at the Orion Nebula in the in the mid infrared, <laughs> they look entirely different. Yes. And of course, if you want to have, if you want to really understand something. You got to use as many different angles on this as possible, mm -hmm. and the and the the combination of optical, near infrared, and mid infrared is real powerful, particularly star formation regions, um, you know, plant, circumstellar disks, and and this sort of thing. So it's a complement to the optical. Sure. Is Gemini the best pair of telescopes to observe with infrared? Oh man, you're going to get me in trouble here. Uh, if not, we're right close to the top. I'll tell you. The, uh, now, I think there there are some things that that Gemini can do that 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 we're really the best. And um, one one of them is the mid infrared. And the, and I think the reason is is because of the silver coatings that helps a lot. The very clean thermal structure of the telescope is, are very good. The sites are good. Mauna Kea is a very very good site for the mid infrared. And we have very good instruments. One that was built right here in the UK, as a matter of fact, named Michelle, and one that was built at the University of Florida named T-Rex. And those are the two instruments on the north and the south. And um, those are hard to beat right now. Well, I was going to say we're very proud to say that the, the two most sensitive detections ever made from the ground were made from Gemini North and Gemini South. Now, again, Spitzer up in space, that's a completely different regime. Spitzer's a thousand times more sensitive than we are um, just because they don't have to look through the atmosphere. But on the other hand, I can get you 10 times better spatial resolution than Spitzer can. So it's a complementary sort of thing. But from the ground right now, Gemini is very hard to beat in the mid-infrared. In the near-infrared, we're good. We're, um, we're certainly as good as Subaru, for example, or Keck, mm -hmm. right. which which we can see, or the VLT in some sense, I think. The VLT has a very strong adaptive optics program. And um, I think they're close. It's probably between them and Keck being right at the top, but we're, we're right on their heels there. And in the optical, I would say we're as good as everybody else. Um, our GMOS matches very well with um, some of the other instruments at the, at the, at the big 8 to 10 meter class telescopes. Fantastic. Right on. What's your, perfect, what's your uh, research topic yourself? What are you uh, interested in? Yeah, I, I did my Ph.D. thesis on circumstellar disks. Right. I was a, a mid-infrared mid guy. I helped build an, build an instrument while I was in school. And, um, and you know, sort of, um, again, looking for dust dust disks around um, stars that are similar to the sun mm -hmm. or a little bit heavier than the sun, but Vega, um, Beta Pictoris, um, things like this, an idea where you're really looking down into sort of what we consider planetary nurseries. Right. These are these are stars that are like the sun, but much younger, and um, and they're the dust that the planets like the Earth formed out of was still dust back at that time. And um, one of the things we're kind of proud of is you know we've seen structures in some of these disks that seem to imply that there are warps and and gaps and rings mm -hmm. and things like that. True signposts for planets just forming right now. And and so that that's what I concentrate on the so most. So you can actually see rings in these. Dust disks. Oh, oh, indeed, indeed. Some of the some of the best resolved ones are, are many arc seconds across. Hmm. Now, with Gemini, with an eight meter telescope, um, our spatial resolution in the mid infrared is is about one third of an arc second, zero point three, zero point four arc seconds. So, when you have um, a disk that's say ten arc seconds across. Well, you're resolving. You can resolve structure down in there, and um, and we've seen some pretty intriguing things that look again look like gaps. Um, you know, and you think, well, how do you get a gap in a disk? Well, certainly you have something orbiting around the star, clearing out a gap, that sort of thing. Yeah. Indirect evidence. Now, you know, we haven't seen any, haven't seen a bright spot in there yet, but but um, but we're looking. Is it possible though for Gemini to see the actual planet themselves? I th I think we're getting close, mate. As a matter of fact, we have um, two programs right now that are actively looking for 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 planets for extrasolar, and not just um, indirect evidence. You know, like the reflex motion, the mm -hmm. the Doppler shift planets, mm -hmm. which we call, but a true picture. And there's a big race 
all the all the biggies, sure all the biggies right now. We got got a race, and and we're running as hard as anybody else to try to get it. And we have certainly at least as good a chance as I would say as the other big telescopes. Again, just because we we, we feel that we're real strong in the infrared, and that's where it's going to happen first. Would it be through the sensitivity of Gemini or through the spatial resolution of Gemini that you'll be able to see these planets directly, or a combination? No, that's a good question. I mean, I think that. It's 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 a combination. I mean, it's very hard to separate these things, but I think um, image quality and sensitivity, the combination of those two factors, give us a good shot. Now, the adaptive optics on VLT and CAC, they give them a little bit of leg up. So we all have our strengths, and that's why it's such a close race. I, we're within one or two strides of each other, I think, right now in the race to image the first extrasolar planet. Oh, that's exciting time. Yeah, it's pretty neat, though. I mean, if, even think about this. You know, my, my thesis advisor, you know, we weren't even thinking about this back in the 70s sort of thing. Yeah. <laughs> so that's pretty cool. What brings you to Preston for the um, NAM? For the NAM, I'm, um, um, my official title is I'm the outreach scientist for Gemini. So um, in this particular case, I, I'm, I don't have science to present, but I'm here representing Gemini as, uh, um, you know, not just a PR person, but I, I guess in, in some sense a PR person in this case. You know, I want to talk to people at the meeting if they have questions. Um, you know, again, there's this, this kind of weird thing about Gemini is since we run the queue so much, um, people don't come to visit us so much. And maybe, you know, it's hard to get the word out to the community. And listen, the, U- the UK is a 25% partner of Gemini. They are a major partner in our telescopes. Mm-hmm. And we want to make sure that the, that the UK community realizes what we can do for them. And, um, and so we're here to sort of press the flesh and, um, and, and try to get the word out about what we're doing there. Fantastic. Thank you very much indeed for taking the time to indeed, talk to Nick. us. Nice to talk to you, buddy. Brilliant. That was, that was great. He's a wonderful guy. Very, very enthusiastic about he the did, he, Gemini telescopes. He is, isn't he? He, he is. is. He's over the top. Now the person who bounced those poems off the moon, he's back again to tell us what's still up in the night sky. Here's Ian Morrison. Well, now let's have a look at the night sky in July. Well, at least during July, the night's getting slightly longer and it gets a bit darker in the middle of the night. So that's perhaps a help. As one looks above in the sky at about 10 o'clock British summer time, we see the constellation Ursa Major, the Great Bear, with the plough as the most obvious part of it. If you then move towards the south, you first come to the constellation Hercules, which contains a magnificent globular cluster called M13, just glimpsed with binoculars, but a wonderful object in a small telescope. Moving further south, one crosses the large but not prominent constellation Ophiuchus, which actually the sun passes through. It really ought to be part of the ecliptic, but you never actually heard hear anybody being called an Ophiuchan, do you? Below Ophiuchus lie the constellations of Sagittarius and Scorpio. Sagittarius is towards the centre of our galaxy and is a wonderful constellation to observe, but sadly not from our northerly latitudes. It's so low above the horizon, we don't really make much out of what there is to see. A holiday to the the Mediterranean is not a bad thing, because it does rise somewhat higher in the sky, and one can see it much better. Now at that time, late evening, rising in the east, is the beautiful region of the Milky Way, containing Cygnus, Lyra, and below them, Aquila the Eagle. Uh, The three bright stars, Deneb in Cygnus, Vega in Lyra and Altair in Aquila make up what uh, I think Patrick Moore called the Summer Triangle. With binoculars, if you actually move from Altair up towards Vega, you may well spot what looks like a little upside-down coat hanger. It's called Brocky's Cluster, but usually called the Coat Hanger, a very pretty asterism of stars. So what about the planets this month? Well, it's not such a bad month, actually. As July begins, you may well be able to see Saturn, which lies in the constellation of Leo, about 7.5 degrees to the west of Leo's bright star Regulus. But as the month goes by, it's getting closer to the sun, and we won't really be able to see it very well. I'll come back to Saturn a little bit later on. Its magnitude is about plus 0.6, so it's still pretty bright, and the globe still has an angular size of about 17 arc seconds. So we have just a week or two more to observe Saturn until next year. 
Mercury, however, passed between the Earth and the Sun on the 28th of June. So, in fact, during July, it's just 5 degrees away from the Sun at the beginning of the month, increasing to about 15 degrees. It's still too close to the Sun to be seen in the glare of the pre-dawn sky, so we have to wait a while to see Mercury again. Now, Mars, on the other hand, is actually getting better as the months go by. It's now rising around midnight and reaches an elevation of about 40 degrees above the southeastern horizon before dawn. The disk is still pretty small, about 6.3 arc seconds, gradually increasing to 7 during the month. And it's just possible that under good conditions, a telescope might show its polar caps and Certis Major, which is a prominent dark marking. Now, Mars is going to reach opposition when it's nearest to us in December, and that will be a highlight of the winter months, but at least one can actually begin to see it as it gradually nears the Earth. Well, Venus shines brightly in the western sky after sunset. It sets an hour or so after the sun, and with a magnitude of minus 4.4, you can actually easily see it. But you will now begin to need a low western horizon, because whereas last month and the month before it was way above the horizon as the sun set, it's now actually dipping down, and after a while we won't see it again for a bit. Well, are there any highlights this month? Well, I think perhaps there are one or two that might well be worth telling you about. One thing just to say is that many astronomers don't really like the moon very much. It, its light gets in the way of observing what they call faint fuzzies, distant galaxies. But it can be fun to observe itself, particularly when the nights aren't too dark. It shows up probably at its best in the evenings when it's at first quarter. That's the Terminator runs right across and you see sort of a, a quarter moon. And on the Terminator you see the craters delineated very, very clearly indeed. So that happens around July the 22nd, perhaps something to look forward to. Now, Jupiter. I haven't mentioned that when I talked about planets because that perhaps really is a highlight of this month. It's seen in the south and obviously therefore highest in the sky about 10pm in the evening and has a magnitude of about minus 2.5, so it's pretty bright. It's up and to the left of the red star Antares in Scorpius, although in fact Jupiter is in Ophiuchus, part of which just dips down between Sagittarius and Scorpius. Sadly, um, Jupiter is currently at the most southerly point of the ecliptic. Now that's the path of the sun and near where you see the planets. So it will not be high in the sky for observers at our northern latitudes. In fact, only about 16 degrees elevation from central England, and if you happen to live in northern Scotland, no more than 11 degrees. And thus, seeing it through the atmosphere will certainly degrade our image, which is a real pity. But nevertheless, Jupiter is probably at its best for evening viewing in July. We've mentioned Saturn and Venus as being visible in the evening sky. And on the very 1st of July, you can actually see them at a conjunction. They lie within one degree of each other, in fact, 42 arc minutes. So they'll appear very, very close indeed. Now, again, you will need a low western horizon to see them well. But if it is clear on July the 1st, why not try and have a look? You don't often see them as close as that. Another thing that you might try with a pair of binoculars is to, in fact, to spot one of our dwarf planets. You may remember that the classification of planets has changed. And the largest of the objects in the asteroid belt, which lies between Mars and Jupiter, is called Ceres. It's not that bright at magnitude 9.2, but it can be picked up with binoculars on a reasonably transparent night. And during July, it's tracking across the sky just below Mars. Mars is in Aries, and um, Ceres, is in fact, is in Cetus the Whale. Um, on my night sky page, I've actually shown a chart showing you where these two planets move and how they move during the month. So it might be nice just to spot something, uh, which is a, a planet of a sort anyway, and see how it moves throughout the month. So I hope that will give you something to look at during July. Of course, as we go towards the end, the nights draw in a bit and there's a longer period of dark, making astronomy perhaps a bit better for us.
Thanks, Ian. Now, before we go, we have some people to say thank you to. Stuart. On Friday, we got an email from Randall Affleck, who's from Prince Edward Island up in Canada, and he listens to the Jodcast while milking his cows. Well, that's, uh, you know, I think that's the first time anybody has said... No, it is the first time that anybody has said that uh, they listen to the Jodcast while milking cows. It is, and it's the most bizarre situation anyone has listened to the Jodcast in, I think. Well, if you've got an even more bizarre situation you've listened to the Jodcast in, then please let us know. Um, However, we've had some pretty good ones, uh, people travelling... Uh, across eastern Iran and um, somebody out in the Pacific Ocean, I think. So. We have been talking of people letting us know we actually got our first postcard. On my throwaway comment last issue to say we would like postcards, we got a postcard from Jason Hill of Halifax. Yes. That's and, the uh, one in the UK, not the one in Canada. So thank you to Jason for, for sending us a postcard. And anybody else out there who wishes to send us a postcard will be thrilled to receive them. So please do send us a postcard from wherever you are. It doesn't have to be an exotic location. We just want to know that you're out there listening to us. And we also got some reviews on iTunes. Yes, reviews on iTunes, fantastic. Thank you very much to Ken BD, Mike VV, WP4BQV, and Ashal9, who all reviewed us on iTunes. We also would like to say thanks to Stuart Pitt from Edinburgh, who has corrected a few of our spelling mistakes on the Jodcast website. Yes. And we tried to reply to him by email, but it bounced back and we never, never got through to him. So thank you for checking us out and keeping us honest. We also had an email from Kevin Dunn, who has previously helped to paint the Mark II and Level Radio Telescopes here at Jodrell Bank. Yeah, it's quite a surprise uh, communication from him, quite a surprise email saying that, yes, he used to be the, one of the guys who painted the, the mighty Level Telescope. Yeah, so he's been up there, about 90 metres above the Cheshire Plain. Um, he did ask us what type of paint we use these days, and I have been and talked to some of our engineers, and apparently it's a two-pack epoxy white paint that hardens and should last for about 10 years. Well, it's good to know, so at least the level will be looking good for 10 years' time. And so just a general thanks to everybody out there who have been sending us their questions about astronomy and Jodrell Bank Observatory. Please keep them coming in, and we will be doing our best to answer them on future episodes of the Jodcast. And that brings the July issue of the Jodcast to an end, I'm afraid. It does, but not to worry. We'll be back in two weeks. Yes, Yes. another fine episode. Lots of fantastic things lined up. We have an interview with Matt Burley about white dwarves and finding planets around white dwarves. And ask an astronomer. So, thanks must go once again to Stuart, Nick, Ian for doing the night sky. And to you, Dave. Thanks again for being our editor. Thank you. And we shall see you in just two weeks' time. So catch us for the July Extra Show coming out on the 15th of this month. And remember, please review us on iTunes. Yes, more reviews, please. And go to our websites, send us feedback, everything like that, www.jodcast.net. So until next time, goodbye. Bye. Bye, everyone. Yes, that all seems quite clear now. So what were you wondering, Plate? I knew it. That's no ordinary boy. That's... Yes, it is I, Baron Deathmort, but fear not, I shall be back. You haven't heard the last of me and my bad astronomy. Quick, grab him! That won't be necessary, Rattenbury. Professor? You know he can't disapparate within Jodrell. What are you doing? Phoning for a taxi so I can make an escape. Put the mobile down and step away. Now! He knows he shouldn't use a mobile phone here. Put it down! Now, that is an order! I have more tricks up my sleeve than that, you fools! Wait, what's that he's got? It's a microwave. Try anything and I'll make a nice jacket potato. But that would destroy all our radio astronomy data. We would lose everything. Oh, with cheese or baked beans. What are we going to do? Will Baron Deathmort's really destroy Jodrell's work? Can Nick get a Faraday cage around the microwave in time? Will anyone notice that Jodrell Bank has an American caretaker with a gun? Find out in the concluding part in the July Extra issue. In that intro and outro, our appellity was Nick, Paula Cartwright was Stuart, Captain John Tadrazak was the caretaker, and John Morgan was Baron Deathmorts. Ian Morrison and I played ourselves. See you in two weeks. <laughs>